Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. All right, so we are live and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And today we are interviewing the Reverend Sarah Barron, who is my closest neighbor among Methodists here in this area as she serves the first UMC of Schenectady. She is also a dear friend and a badass lady of the cloth. So you, you were high on our list of people that we wanted to talk to. I'm honored. Yeah. So we found that it's very, it's very valuable just for our conversations, for our own spirits, and for whoever is listening to this to talk about spiritual journeys. So we wondered how much of yours you'd want to share with us. I have uh, wondered that a little bit too. I've been thinking about a moment I had in seminary. Um, we were talking about conversion and I really don't have a conversion story. Hmm. I was raised in the church. I liked it. I went to church camp. I loved it. Um, and everything moved along rather continuously instead of there being a moment. I mean, there, there's a moment that I think of, there are moments that I think about in terms of my call, but at this point in my life, I differentiate my call from my faith journey. Like they're related, but they're not the same thing. Uh -huh. um, and I, and so I was in seminary and I was really struggling. And uh, one of my colleagues, his name was Andre. Um, and he had, he had a very classical conversion narrative. And he looked at me and he said, I think you have an inverted conversion. And I was like, say more. Hmm. And he was like, for, for most of us, life was really hard. And then there was a moment when we realized God could make it easier. But you are one of the rare and lucky few for whom life was really okay. And your moments were the ones when you realized how hard things were for everyone else and wanted to be a part of changing it. Hmm. And that was um, such a perceptive gift to me. Um, and I think that's been, at least in my adulthood, that's been some of the continual narrative of my faith journey is struggling with how broken things are and then trying to hold that intention with faith in a loving God um, and an awareness of how systems and societies value some and devalue others and that that isn't what God wants um, and, and to maintain hope in the midst of it. But for me, my spiritual home has always been Sky Lake. Um, and I often wonder how it came to be that way, but Sky Lake is for most all of us, there's always exceptions. It's a place where we have been radically welcomed that whatever quirks or dorkiness or um, 
unlovable things the world has made fun of us for. When we bring it to Sky Lake, it's part of what we're loved for. And for me, that was utterly transformational to be an awkward kid who was bullied and picked on and then to go to church camp and be liked. And um, as, I, as I grew up and, and was able to join staff and I was able to see the almost magical powers of what is, of, the, of being liked and loved. Um, and my, my call story and my faith home are both related to Sky Lake. And I have often thought about building the kingdom of God. That's my language for what we're trying to do as people of faith. But um, the pragmatic of what that looks like is making the world more like Sky Lake, where people are celebrated for who they are and loved and welcomed and delighted in um, rather than excluded or made fun of. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I don't have the same experiences that I know that you and Emily both have with Christian camps, with church mm -hmm. camps. And a big part of that is just because I'm not from here. I didn't grow mm -hmm. up in New York. So we didn't, I didn't have this network of camp systems, right? Like, you know, right here, mm -hmm. um, that place for me. So then that place for me isn't a, a camp like Sky Lake, but it's the university of Rochester. Mm -hmm. The first place where I came to where I felt like I was completely loved and celebrated for being me and where we celebrated, we celebrated things about one another that a lot of, a lot of normal people will harass you for, mm -hmm. you know, so it was the kind of place where, you, you know, you could play your musical instrument in the middle of the quad and people would actually want to hear that instead of making fun of you for being the violin girl, you know, or the place where, you know, you can tell people about, you know, all the German you speak and that's, you know, that's cool instead of weird, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, totally. I mean, and it's, it's the, it's the love ethic of Jesus and yet it, it's, it's painful that we have to go to either the university of Rochester or sky Lake in order to feel that way. And I mean, I have a dream that that can happen in the local church and I, um, I hope I work towards, um, I seek and I know that, um, it's hard. It's hard to maintain that level of inclusive, inclusive, non-judgmental, welcoming community. I think that we always succeed in part, but um, people also bring their brokenness with them and the brokenness really quickly moves to judgment, which hurts other people. And then once people are hurting, we get into bad cycles. But I mean, I, I do hope and dream and seek the church to be places like that, but um, I don't think that's normal. No, no, not in our world. It's not, it's well, not. I, think, I mean, by definition of the word holy, a holy place is a place that isn't normal per se, right? And so I think that's the aspiration to build the kingdom in such a way that isn't normal is a holy aspiration. I, you know, while, while the two of you were talking about your your places where you felt that way, I was trying to figure out where that would have been for me. I actually did not grow up in church camp. I only worked there for one summer. I talk about it a lot because it happened to be where I met my spouse and also where I heard my call into pastoral ministry. So pretty much 
my adult life as I have known it for the last decade plus hinged on that, those eight weeks. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I think for me, it was actually the band room, <laughs> which I, I mean, tells our listeners right away just how much of a nerd I was at, as a kid and, and probably still am. Um, but I, it was where the weird kids all congregated and um, the, the people who were faculty down there knew that we were all the weird kids and it was okay because 30 years prior, they were the weird kids too. And then they went and got their degrees and now they were mentoring the weird kids. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's important to make sure that the kids that we're raising now, um, both in our own households and the broader community, have that space somewhere, whether it's the band room or the University of Rochester or church camp, that there's a space somewhere where they can bring all of their beautiful selves and be celebrated for it. Mm -hmm. I was once given the gift of editing um, a friend's term paper, and he was writing about his experiences as a gay man of being genuinely welcomed in his frat. Mm -hmm. And all the things that we have been talking about here, he experienced in his college frat, mm -hmm. which was, give me one sec. Um, holy space space where he was welcomed and loved for who he was. He was president of his frat. Um, and boy, that's exciting when we can bring our whole selves and not just be accepted, but celebrated. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the flip side of that being able to bring your whole self and perhaps one of the biggest things keeping us from seeing more of this energy in our own churches that we go to and that we serve is that in order to have this holy ground of non-judgmental celebratory space, we need passion going with it. And so everyone needs to take the risk of bringing with them the things that they're the most passionate about. And there are many, 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 many things that can frustrate one about serving in the ministry. And the three of us could spend many, many, many hours talking about all of those things. And I just had a conversation with Sean about this the other day where I was saying, gosh, you know, the worst thing about being in the ministry. And he was just like, the one worst thing, there's just <laughs> one, you can actually pick one, <laughs> but, but at least for that day, one of the worst things, one of the most difficult and devastating things about the ministry can be how difficult it is to energize your flock about something. Yes how it, how much it can feel like you are pulling a mule before somebody will buy into what you're trying to do um like it, it, and it, so when it comes to like launching a new kind of programming like like hey i want to start a bible study and nobody comes 
and you bring it up in church council and you remind everybody every Sunday and you put it in the newsletter and you, and you do everything you can to play up like, oh, it's going to be so fun. We're going to talk about this book and we're using this curriculum and we're going to talk about these kinds of things. We're going to be sitting around my, my dining room table in the parsonage and yeah, party at the parsonage. And <laughs> I've even played it up with like, you know, guys, I'm your neighbor. So if you don't show up at my parsonage at six for Bible study, I'm going to stand outside holding my stereo playing Metallica. So that's going to be <laughs> your call that you've got to get your ass over to my house. <laughs> and even that didn't succeed. Um, you know, it, 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 and it, like, and there, there, I just have so many experiences like this where it's just like, what, what does it take to get you guys excited about something? And we sit and worship and there's a whole lot of like thumb twiddling and hands folded patiently and faces that are completely expressionless because we've been taught to be the frozen chosen and be, and, you know, and, and just like, like it, it's terrifying to actually engage in stuff and look like you're excited about the, the service or anything that's going on. Like it, it's a huge risk to show any feelings about anything. Um, but gosh, like if we did, you know, and then we, you know, but then we, and then we wonder why our churches are atrophying and why, you know, why people aren't, you know, why people aren't joining, why people aren't showing up. And it's just like, like, guys, there's, there's like, convince me to stay mm-hmm. and don't say, because it'll help keep the doors open. Like, <laughs> give me an actual reason, you know, like, tell me something, give me something that you're passionate about. Show me this. So, you know, I think, you know, if like, like if Emily's holy space is the band room and it's because that's where you're allowed to just bring your love of music and totally geek out to it. (laughs) And if, you know, Sky Farm is the place where you could be the dorkiest version of yourself and celebrate it, then why aren't we celebrating more in our churches? You know? I also think for the record, Sky Lake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, Sky Lake. My bad. Uh, Sky, Sky Farm, by everything I know, is absolutely wonderful. It's just not the one that is my spiritual home. I think that there's um, an additional challenge in churches where they are more like long-term partnerships than new love. Mm-hmm. And you know, the some of the challenges of long-term partnerships are that um, when we love someone or something, it makes us vulnerable, which sometimes actually makes us easy, easily hurt. Mm -hmm. And over months or years or decades, there can be a lot of accumulated hurts. Mm -hmm. Um, And in, in spaces where it could be hard to say, Ooh, ow, that hurt. um, That decreases the space for passion and authenticity. Yeah, I think too, there's just a a cultural phenomenon that previous generations, um, folks older than us, were were taught that you were to behave a certain way in church because that was how you showed respect for God. Yeah. That I'm, I mean, even a little bit of that when I was growing up, I asked my mom one day why we always had to dress up for church. And she said, because that's how you show respect for God. And so there's been kind of this pervasive 
ethos that you don't you don't come with your mess, you come with your best. And that if you come with your mess and you let your mess show, then you're disrespecting God and you're desecrating the holy space with all of your humanness. And I and so I think people have learned over time to not be vulnerable in church because that's considered unholy or considered disrespectful. Um, and I think a lot of that is what we're having to work against. I see that too in the ways that churches respond to children um, and particularly in my household and, and uh, you know, to, to neurodiverse children who don't behave in public spaces in manners that are considered typical and appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think the gifts that we miss when we do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because for, in my experiences, so I, I grew up as a, um, as a camper at Sky Lake, but as soon as I joined staff, I ended up spending the vast majority of my time working with campers um, who are people with special needs. And mm-hmm. there was been no greater gift in my life. <laughs> things I have learned from my campers. Um, and when we isolate ourselves from neurodiversity, when we harden ourselves from the brokenness of life, we miss most of the good stuff that life actually wants to give us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, we also then teach that neurodiverse person things about their belongingness in the world that keep that they keep with them. Because like my, my oldest, Daniel, is eight. And unfortunately, now I'm trying to unlearn him of some of the things that he's learned at church. <laughs> because he's been, he has faced various versions of what I respectfully and lovingly call the shush committee. The people that yeah. will hear a child being anything other than silent and will come up to you and instead of offering to help or anything at all that will go mm-hmm. you know yeah. and <laughs> it's ironic because uh most of those adults aren't silent either and also you coming up to me and being all you're making too much noise is honestly more distracting than my kid just quietly stimming in the corner yeah yeah but that's, you know, it's our thing about, you know, what, what, what looks appropriate when protecting the holy. Yeah. And there really are generational differences there. Um, mm-hmm. This has been a, a regular thing that I have struggled with in ministry um, in that I, I am a part of my generation and I really do not have strong lines between the secular and the sacred. I find the holy in the everyday um, and try hard to um, maintain my awareness of the sacred in the mundane. Um, and I have to consciously remind myself that there are many people in my church who were trained that God is separate and distinct and we are quiet and respectful and well-dressed and stoic. And that while I may disagree, that's their authentic expression. And how do I make space for that without silencing others? And that's really one of the challenges that I face because I, I am not neutral. I fall distinctly into one camp, but I don't want to silence the other. Yeah. 
I've found that sometimes what you need is your kid to come crashing through it, like Miley Cyrus in the Wrecking Ball video. <laughs> and, and, and Only maybe really, wearing clothes. Yes, maybe. maybe wearing clothes and not like licking a hammer. But, um, you know, because that's probably dangerous. But other than that, because... Um, it, it, like my kids have, have been the best thing in my ministry mm-hmm. and they have gifts for evangelism that I don't have, that they mm-hmm. very naturally carry with them. And uh, like, sometimes people just really need to have that shaken out of them. This, this idea that things in church have to look a certain way. Um, so Daniel in the moments when I can get him to come with me, will do things like dance to the hymns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, run up and down aisles. Uh, he, uh, he will script moments from his favorite Star Wars movies mm-hmm. because that is the holy to him. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to leave Star Wars out of church. I mean, really. And there's great mm-hmm. spiritual lessons that you could pull out of Star Wars if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and this last Sunday, um, I, the boys were at home with Sean, but Lily was with me all day. Um, and she, she just really wanted to shadow me. So she didn't want to go to the nursery and she didn't want to sit in the pew with a grown up. She just really, really wanted to sit next to mommy. Um, so she was my, she was my little associate pastor all day. Um, and, uh, you know, and the, the things that she says and the questions that she asked are just very, you know what, nobody asks that, you know, mm-hmm. like she, she, you know, she, we were taking communion because it was a communion Sunday and she's like, oh, this tastes just like Kool-Aid mommy. <laughs> and you know somebody like we were afraid to even make those little observations you yeah. know yeah and then later in the day she actually helped me officiate a wedding so that's yeah. so cool yeah yeah so i wonder sarah if you would share with our listeners just a war story that you're willing to share from ministry. Ministry, we've talked around the edges of some of the challenges of it. So I've been thinking about this and um, I don't know if I'm right. I can find both both narratives within myself, but I've been thinking that um, I don't know any women or non-binary people who don't have significant stories of sexual harassment in the church. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe there's consciousness raising and solidarity in sharing it, but it feels right now to me, which is probably more about me than anyone else, that um, to share those stories is to continue to do more damage to those who have already been damaged. And the truth is that um, those who don't believe those things happen to us on a regular basis, no matter what we tell them, will um, believe those to be exceptions and not the rule. Mm. And so I, if it's okay, I wanted to talk about <laughs> the mundane uh, again, that um, the, the constant challenge that is the tiny little ways that I have less authority than I would have if I was male, mm-hmm. but in such tiny ways, like, like what the, the metaphor I can come up with is, we know we have more hurricanes and they're stronger because of climate change, but it's impossible to say that any particular hurricane or its strength is because of climate change. Like mm. the whole, it's clear the individual is 
unclear. And, and so there's, there's all the, the microaggressions that exist in life. Um, I love Kate Mann's book, um, Down Girl. Huh. And uh, one of the things that she talks about is the privilege that we give in society to some people of being human beings, where you get to be and your emotions and your narratives matter. Um, and that the rest of the population is put in the place of human doer. And the responsibility of the human doer is to give and to support the human being and to take care of their needs and their wants and their emotions, preferably without the human being naming that they need those things done. Um, and, and so I think that the, the challenge is, from the internal challenge for me is simultaneously holding an awareness um, of the ways that misogyny is impacting my day to day so that I sort of acknowledge to myself that things are harder than they might be otherwise and that this is not okay. And I don't actually want to let that embitter me. Mm -hmm. um, I, yes. want to, I want to remain soft and loving. I don't want to let it make me abrasive. Um, and and I, I sometimes find that I spend more time than I want to on self-regulation, but I have to because that's what it takes to be responding to all the little things and, and holding those tensions. I mean, there's things that I can call out, but most of the little stuff in life you can't call out and you, you can't nail down, well, I got a smaller cost of living raise because I'm a woman, like, because you can't know that. But you can look over time and be like, well, statistically, this is happening to all of us. So this might be an example of that. Or, or just when I, when I have an idea, um, how it's received and how it might be received differently in other ways. And so I, I have been struggling without coming to any good conclusions, but um, I think of the, the song in I think it's Ephesians about um, Christ emptying himself so that he could become human and the, the presumption in it that we're supposed to empty ourselves to make space for Christ. And I understand that to be deeply meaningful for a lot of people. And it is horrifying for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, have, I have come to be aware that I prefer a metaphor of becoming aware of God with me and God nudging me and supporting me and urging me, but that God is working with who I am and not asking me to replace it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as I have, have done that transition theologically, I've then noticed that that is a challenge in ministry because most of the models I've seen of ministry are largely to try to take self out mm -hmm. and neutral. So to be the non-anxious presence, to put my needs aside, to put my wants aside, to put my preferences aside. Um, and, and first of all, I don't think that's possible. So it's probably a useless uh, waste of energy. But, um, but I struggle to find the balance of how I can bring my whole self to ministry while also wanting, I do, I do think there's value to non-anxious presence and, um, and I don't want to dominate the space. And I'm aware that I walk into every space with more authority and more respect than most of the people in the room. And, and that I do need to take a step back so that the, um, the needs of the body can take precedence and figuring out how to, um, 
how to do ministry without expecting an emptiness of myself while also empowering others is a constant challenge that I have not done terribly well developing on. Yeah. So Sarah, while you were talking, I did a quick Google to find um, to to find a uh, a work that was done by a social psychologist by the name of Deborah Tannen back in the early '90s, and it was an essay that she wrote called "There Is No Unmarked Woman." And she has a whole theory that she greatly extrapolates throughout this piece that she wrote. Um, but this is exactly what you're talking about with microaggressions and it is a, a picture of exactly what women preachers have to face an onslaught of in our ministries and the whole reason why we feel like we want to empty ourselves we're being pressured to empty ourselves but it's impossible to do that and society doesn't allow it because men can go in the world and have the privilege of being unmarked so they have the privilege of being just some dude and just whatever you would think of when you think of just some dude if you're not thinking of anything in particular when it, when men get dressed and they're pastors and they're getting dressed to lead worship on a sunday morning they can put on a collared dress shirt and black or khaki dress pants with a black or brown leather belt and black dress shoes and then a, you know a, a generic looking preaching robe if they want it because they don't feel the same pressure to robe they don't feel the same implications of whether they do or don't and and nobody's looking at what they look like they can be any height they can be any weight their face can look like any kind of face their hair can look like any kind of hair and people just don't even notice those things they're focusing on the message whereas with women i came into the ministry 25 about to turn 26 when i started my very first appointment and i got myself into a, a low level form of psychosis about what i was supposed to look like on a sunday morning before i eventually settled on wearing the clergy collar and even now as i have come more into my own i've been personalizing these outfits more so like now i'm wearing like my blazer with it and like my rainbow collar instead of the normal one and like jeans and my converses with this outfit but I, I i i would spend like over an hour staring at my closet as a woman in her mid-20s trying to figure out what outfit would would just would be unremarkable like it, it, where is this neckline is it too high is it too low? Is it going to look kind of slutty? Or is it going to look kind of frumpy and matronly? Um, is this the right amount of makeup to wear? Is it going to be too much? And then are people going to think I'm too caked up? Or is it going to be like not enough? And then are people going to think like, wow, she looks like really pale today. And you know, what kind of shoes am I wearing? Are they like, you know, are they dressy enough? Or are you know, are the heels too high or too low? Are they going to look too casual? Or are they going to look too dressed up? Am I going to look like I'm too good for you? Like, where's the hemline on the skirt? Like, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and these, these just drove me absolutely insane. 
And in yeah. one, in one um, clergy women group that, uh, or it was, so it was, uh, it was an ecumenical clergy group that I found myself in a couple of years ago. We, as a group of, you know, a handful of women and then a handful of men, we're talking about how we feel about on Sunday morning, do you put a robe on or do you not? And most of the men in the group were saying, no, nah, you know, I, I, I don't like it because it's just an extra layer and it, like it's hot, it's uncomfortable. And also, I just feel like I just want to look like everyone else. And I, I feel like the robe sets me apart too much. And every single woman in this group had the exact same reaction and the exact same reason for why they insist on robing. And it was, <laughs> oh, God, if I don't have that on, think about all of the comments I'm going to get about my outfit and my body. People just won't shut up about that. Like the robe is the only thing protecting me from that, you know? So it's, it, it just, it, it becomes a death by a thousand cuts, you know? So how do we, yeah. yeah, you know, how do we, how do we, um, so it's this dance that Sarah, you had just talked about a minute ago of how do I stay myself and how do I stay soft? Because I have to become shielded and hard enough to be able to walk into a room where everyone's going to have something to say about my hair or my face or my clothes and not let that get to me, but also not become this very invulnerable person that can't relate to people that can't hear the small nuances of your soul and that need and that needs to be able to do that so that I can serve you so how do you do both you know so that's that's what I think of as the constant war yep yep so yes Deborah Tannen there's no such thing as an unmarked woman whatever whatever you are whoever you are whatever you look like you're going to carry all of that in with you and we just we do it in a different way than men i have heard that to be true too for people of any sort of visible minority status yes yes so um, yes it's true for white men Men of color are marked. GLBTQ men are marked. Right. Religious minority men are marked. Men with disabilities, with disabilities. are marked. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think I keep coming back to this idea of a strong back and soft front. And I've heard, I've read it and heard it in several different media. Um, and I think that's that's really what we're going after is, is walking into a space, existing in a space with a strong back and a soft front. But I've also been turning over, Sarah, your, your words about shifting theology away from a theology of emptying yourself. And I thought about, um, <laughs> my kids are, are, especially the older two, are really creative. They like to build things with Legos or paint things on paper or do all sorts of different creative things. And, and you know, sometimes it gets overwhelming. My, my eldest will bring me like eight or 10 different drawings and paintings she's made in a day and want me to save all of them, knowing full well that the next day there are going to be eight or 10 more. But also, I, I notice how devastating it is to the kids when any one of their creations gets messed up. Hmm. And, and so I wonder what God might think of this emptying ourselves theology. Like, like I can imagine, and I don't want anthropomorph- to anthropomorphize God too much, um, but I can imagine God watching us all try to empty ourselves and and saying but 
but I made you like that, but I made you beautiful and I made you holy and I made you in my image. Why are you trying to undo that? Why are you, why are you trying in my name to undo my creation? And, and so I think just to reiterate your theological shift, I think, I think God doesn't want us to empty ourselves in the ways in which we have historically understood and taught that text. Mm -hmm. And also that emptying yourself never meant unsexing yourself. We are not Lady Macbeth. <laughs> that too yes absolutely well and I, I actually yeah. think that that's part of how it's been used right because because the emptying ourselves is the attempt to make ourselves the neutral generic non-disabled straight cis white guy but we're not right mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and I mean it, it like uh, that passage from Ephesians talks about Jesus emptying himself, not of, not of anything that made him himself, but of greed mm -hmm. and pompousness and prejudice mm -hmm. and hatred and all things that would have protected him from ending up on the cross. Right. Because if he if he would have had this uh, hubristic swagger going through the streets of Jerusalem, being like, who are you trying to put up on that cross? I'm Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That might have saved him. But yeah. instead, when he when he faced off with Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate said, are you king of the, the Jews? He just said. You say so. <laughs> well, you say so. Yeah. 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 Sarah, I'm wondering, because there's so much in the ministry that can get us down and that can tie up our energy and that can be a lot to deal with. We need to balance that with something exciting. So tell us about something that excites you. The most exciting stuff for me hasn't actually changed much in my years of ministry. I love watching the moments of connection. Huh. I've always particularly loved the sound of a church before the prelude starts, when all the people are talking to each other quietly, but excited to see each other. Um, this past Sunday, I had a really long wait for the receiving line because everybody was too busy talking to each other to come talk to me. <laughs> um, and, and all the little ways that people connect. And I have noticed over the past few years that, um, that as I think about what, what I see is broken in the world and what gifts the church has to respond, that actually feels like the place that we are most gifted to make change, to transform the world, that um, I think most people are lonely in large part because the narrative that we're sharing about whether or not you can bring your authentic self to church, I mean, heaven forbid you bring it to most of the world, right? Like it's even worse. Um, and, and that people need spaces where they can be accepted and loved and, and delighted in and celebrated and where they can share vulnerable self and they can say things like here that aren't easy to think about or easy to hear. And so um, 
I love the moments of connection and I am working towards um, trying to build in like intentional listening groups in the church. Mm. The idea that as people develop skill can develop skills of listening and connecting and talking about emotions and acknowledging needs. And as they hear each other and develop capacity to hear themselves, they are simultaneously um, getting better at hearing the divine because I don't think the divine can be heard when we are silencing ourselves mm -hmm. and breaking open their hearts so that there is ever more space to love more and more diversity of God's people. And so the thing that excites me is connecting people and making space for those connections to deepen. Mm. One thing that I found has been very valuable in the ministry in terms of stirring up passion in people and also in terms of what you're talking about, this connect, this building these connections and these sacred friendships, which are the building blocks of the kingdom, is silliness. Yeah. <laughs> we need we need more laughter and we need more play in our worship spaces. We need to help people understand that it's okay to like move muscles when mm -hmm. you're in church. It's okay to make noises when you are in church. Um, and because that's what helps you become most yourself. And uh, of all places, I learned this last summer when Sean took me to the Godzilla Fest in Chicago. <laughs> because I saw how pumped all of those Godzilla nerds were about their fandom. And it was, you know, right on the note that we started at this place where you could be completely yourself and you were celebrated for it. And especially the people who showed up in costume. We had, there was one lady there who was cosplaying as Mothra. There's like a big butterfly and Sean would get mad at me for saying that, but she looks like a big butterfly. So she was wearing like a black shirt with like the wings and then she would, you know, put out her arms and like take pictures with people. Um, and it just like yeah, they they looked and felt like they were kids again, even though they were there were people there and like that are, were well into old age, mm. you know. But that that level of spiritedness, that level of being able to make even some fun of yourself, so you don't care if other people are making fun of it. Like, yes, I know that it's ridiculous, but I like it. Darn it! So that's what I'm doing. So one of the ways that I found is helpful to do that in a church is funny hat day. We haven't implemented that at Eastern Parkway, but it's been very successful in previous churches hmm. because that, that seems to be a place where people are comfortable, especially mm -hmm. old ladies. Hmm. Every old lady that I've ever encountered in a church has at least six silly hats <laughs> that they, you know, that they want to like parade in front of everybody and, and they, they get to show off something that is unique to them. I love that idea. Yeah. yeah, I do think play and fun are absolutely core to making space for humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Music can help with that too, with the, the playful energy. I served one church where uh, I brought in a bunch of like maracas and like like small percussion instruments and had everybody just experiment with, just shake something during the hymn mm -hmm. as accompaniment. I don't care if it's offbeat because sometimes you guys are going to like try to clap or something and it's going to be offbeat anyway. So just risk it. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. I love the idea of those intentional groups that that you're working towards, though, Sarah. I love the idea of not quite forcing vulnerability, but also strongly encouraging it in the way that you're structuring the 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 ministry. Um, I think that you know I was talking with someone yesterday from the congregation here and you know, I can say that it was someone in their 80s and that doesn't give it away because that's the majority of my church, um, 70s or 80s. And, and this, uh, this person, we're talking about wilderness experiences. In Advent, there's a lot of voice crying out in the wilderness sort of language. And so, and we're recording this during Advent. We'll launch it later. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's important to note. And so we were talking about what does wilderness mean now in our contemporary context. And this person who was like in their 70s or 80s said, wilderness is being alone in a crowd. Mm-hmm. They said, wilderness is being surrounded by people and, and feeling so lonely. And I think that that goes right back to that vulnerability piece that, that even people who are of a generation that, um, that encourages stoicism in church and encourages sort of a an invulnerability that there's still a craving to be known yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i've been um living into playing with uh, a lot of the teaching of parker palmer in in the listening groups that we're moving towards a combination of parker palmer and nonviolent communication and um yeah the um there's, there's intentional ways to create spaces that make vulnerability safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's key, that, that encouraging vulnerability and also keeping it a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, heaven forbid, the last thing we want to do is tell people that they're safe when they're not or encourage right. vulnerability when it's going to get rejected and hurt. Like that's, that's really not what we want no and yet it's the first of many things that we could have in common is that we all fear rejection (laughs) we i mean we fear our shared humanity in church spaces which is dreadful i i like you um like you both i think i started ministry young i was 25 (laughs) when i took my first appointment and um and so one of the greatest gifts I've been given in ministry is that part of the job is to sit with family and loved ones after someone dies and say, what do you miss about this person as, as part of figuring out how to adapt language and worship so that we can adequately celebrate their life. And I noticed pretty early on that I was still feeling extraordinary pressure to conform to some undefined norm and what people missed most about their loved ones was the ways that they didn't. Mm. And what a gift that was to me in my 20s to say, hey, the people who actually love me like the stuff that's unique and weird about me, not my capacity to pretend it away. Huh, okay. That's totally. Yeah. Totally. And when Jesus came to walk among us, he came fully divine and also fully human with all of the things that come with that. We lose that a lot. 
in our yeah. ministries. And I think naming that is a good segue to a question we've asked all of our um, our guests so far, which is what would you want for the world to know about God or about the divine? I have been thinking about this question. Um, and this is probably this week's answer, but the most fundamental thing that I want people to know about God is that God is love. Um, but I don't know that that can hit home in the ways that I want it to without talking about um, rejection, as Natalie just said, and shame, which I think is one of the most powerful experiences that all of us have. And far too much of Christian history involves shaming people. <laughs> far too much of modern, current Christianity involves shaming people. <laughs> Um, and it's wrong. And I believe with my whole heart that even the things we have done most wrong in our lives, which be the ways that we have hurt other people, God is able to forgive us. And it is most often our shame that gets in the way of making space for love. And so um, I want people to know that God is love. I also want them to know that God is not shaming them and that the shame that we experience is our own. Um, and that with, with the giftedness of quiet space to hear the divine or um, a gifted friend in faith or a gifted pastoral leader or the wonders of nature or whatever means of grace works best for you, it really is possible for God to wipe away our shame and make space for love and joy. And that's what God is wanting for all of us. That's beautiful, Sarah. And I agree completely. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us for this and for supporting us in this crazy venture of starting a podcast and putting this out to the world. But if there is one person in the world who gives us that kind of bravery, you are our soul sister. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. What an honor and a delight to talk with both of you. Cool. Peace and love. Peace and love. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.